Today on the Women Mind the Water Artemis series, I'm speaking with Colleen Flanagan. Colleen describes herself as a socio-ecological artist. Her work is both functional and artistic. Skilled in metalwork, Colleen designed and built a sculptural frame for coral. In doing so, she has promoted a marine community that thrives in the presence of healthy coral. The Women Mind the Water podcast series engages artists in conversation about their work and explores their connection with the ocean. Through their stories, Women Mind the Water hopes to inspire and encourage action to protect the ocean and her creatures. I am most pleased to welcome Colleen Flanagan to the Women Mind the Water Art of a Series podcast. This is going to be a fascinating discussion, one that explores art as a way to promote coral ecosystems. I encourage folks to watch the video version of this podcast because there will be underwater footage of Colleen and her living sea sculpture. Colleen works at the intersection of art, science, technology, and the environment. Her work is both functional and artistic. Colleen has created metalwork in many forms, including jewelry and puppets for motion pictures, such as the stop-motion animation Coraline, a 2009 film directed by Henry Selick. Today, we will focus on a metal frame she created to be a work of art, as well as a functional support for living coral. Her living sea sculpture is on display in an underwater museum in Cozumel, Mexico. Welcome, Colleen. Thank, I am, you. <laughs> thank you for being here. I am looking forward to our conversation about your work, the life of coral, and your perspective on using art in the service of the environment. I think I would be correct in saying you are the first artist on this podcast whose art directly benefits the ocean and her creatures. Colleen, I've got so many questions because yours is a most unusual project. I think I'll begin by asking, when did you become interested in metalwork? I began actually making jewelry when I was 15. I think when I was 12 years old, I wanted to be a jeweler, how you go through phases. Mm -hmm. And I remember wanting to to do metalwork very young. So when I was 15, I went to a junior college and started to to explore traditional soldering and, and fabrication skills. So I know a little about metalwork. What properties do you look for in selecting a metal to work with? With metalwork, it's more like if you're looking to make jewelry with fine metals like silver or gold or copper, you know, there's, there's that, that um, line of metal. But I was really drawn in my 20s when I was at a Oregon College of Art and Craft. I was continuing my, my studies, and I knew I wanted to move more sculpturally and larger, so I wanted to learn how to weld. So then I, I started welding with steel. And I think if, it really depends. In the, in the case of the projects for the reefs, they need to be conductive and strong for electrification for a very specific chemical process. So I, I stick with steel currently for that, and I'm looking for biomineralizing other types of biocompatible materials. Wow, that's a mouthful, biomineralizing materials. What does that mean? Biomineralizing means that there will be some sort of property when the, the material is in the ocean, that it actually has a little bit of a charge or conductivity of its own making, that it starts to precipitate 
the limestone minerals and calcium carbonate that exist in the ocean to get rigid. So it goes from a more flexible material or a smaller diameter to a really fortified, strong reef substrate. So you have to be more than a welder. You almost have to be a chemist. Yes, like over the years, well, in, in metalsmithing, what was fun is I used to do electroforming where I would take, for example, a cauliflower, like a real vegetable, paint it with an electroconductive paint, and then in this toxic sort of sulfur acidic bath, I'm, I'm forgetting the exact chemicals, but it was basically plating copper onto the cauliflower. So I ended up having this copper cauliflower. So there was a lot of patinas and chemistry in metalsmithing. And now working in the ocean, I collaborate with a lot of material scientists as well so that we can start developing new innovative materials in a co-inventing. Well, this is fascinating, but let's back up just a minute because mm-hmm. I know a little about metalwork. What properties do you look for in selecting a metal? Metal has the ability to be molten when you heat it up, you know, to be flexible um, when you heat it to a certain degree. So when I'm looking for, say, a sculpture that's large scale, I'm going to usually go for a steel or something that I can stick into a forge or I can heat with a torch and then get it bendable enough that I can bend it and then I can weld it. And so it's sort of like, what do you want to make is the way I determine the properties. Copper is very soft for, say, hammering or forging. I mean, not forging, but... um, when you take a, a flat sheet of copper and you anneal it, which means you heat it with a torch to get it to a certain temperature, then you quench it the right way or you let it air cool. Like there's these very, as a metalsmith, you, you're you always massaging sort of metal with heat and then tempering it with air. And, and, and that's how you kind of control its properties that you need. That makes wow. sense. Wow. <laughs> when, you, when you talk about hitting metal after you put it in a forge, I get this idea, you know, like uh, the the poem under the uh, broad chestnut tree, the village smithy stand, somebody really physical. Is it a lot of work? I mean, in terms of physical to do that? So blacksmithing um, and forge work, yes, it's very physical. And that's what one of the things that drew me to it is I really am a very physical person. So I loved putting my long rods into the, the furnace um, when I lived in Portland, Oregon, I for for six years, I rented a, a, a shop where I had a jewelry mm-hmm. section and a blacksmithing area. And, and then I would use those power hammers that you step on, those big old like dong, 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 and stick the metal in there while it's glowing red-orange. And that like flattens it out or you twist it. And then while it's red, you can put it in a jig and bend it. And so I, I like that there's this very core. It's like dancing or when you think of glass blowers too, right. it's this timing. But you go from the fine motor skills to the big physical muscles. It's a, you're, you're using all of your body, basically. Yes, very much. So which came first, the metalwork or the interest in diving? You know, I really remember the day while I was blacksmithing in Portland one day going, I know I'm going to dive someday. I don't know. I just know I want to, or because I was raised near the ocean too. And I thought it would be just, you know, you just get a flash sometimes. And then shortly after I was in California at an EcoWave conference in 2003, listening to um, Wolf Hilbert's talk about how you could weld structures 
that with a low volt electrical current precipitate minerals and basically plate minerals onto them and then the corals and the organisms create a whole habitat like they, like you can you can recover coral ecosystems or you can help i can't say you recover we have a lot of issues but that's the moment where i was this is this is what i want to do with my years of metal work so, so the you reefs, took up diving specifically to work underwater Yes. I, right after that, I ran up to Wolf and I said, oh my God, I have to do this. Like I was, it was that aha, like where you're shaking. I was wearing a ring at the time that was a cast silver ring that looked like little barnacles with fish in it that I'd made. I had a lot of subconscious, I think, seeness in me. And then I realized this was tying all the work I did. I was, I also use textiles a lot and I'm mixed media and I could see that Always I took metal and then combined it with bright colors or plants or something that it felt like it was like a preparatory work for this, this transition. Colleen, I can say without a doubt, you're the only artist so far that I have talked to who took up diving in service of her art as opposed to as a hobby and then being inspired by being underwater, they took up the art. That's uh, yeah. That's I lovely. probably would have been too scared. I really had to have a focus. Does that make oh. sense? Like, what? Because then when I'm under there, I'm like, I'm welding. I'm always attaching corals. I'm cleaning. And through that process, I've gained my confidence and passion for the diving world. Other you than weld underwater? No, I weld on land, but okay. then when we take it under. We Okay, right. All right. So how did you become interested in coral? So that really was that 2003 EcoWave conference, watching the, the um, intersectionality of everything I, I was working on and loved to do. I didn't know that corals were dying at the time. I didn't understand the, they, they weren't really on my radar. And so mm-hmm. when I heard um, that, that was the moment. I, I kind of got that, that emotional where you're crying for the loss of this organism and i felt a really emotional a connection to the that was a very powerful presentation and speaker i have to say so tell us a little bit about coral what is coral and can it be found everywhere in the ocean so coral is an animal that is basically when you see a reef you're seeing thousands millions of little polyps which are individual animals that have single cell algae called zooxanthellae living within them. So they're an animal with a plant partner when we're talking about reef building corals specifically. And they're symbiotic. They build reefs through their mineralizing. So you get plant, animal, mineral, all in one living being. And the living reefs we see on the, in the sea today are for the most part of roughly five to 10,000 years old, the ones that we see living, they are um, 2% of the seafloor maybe has corals. And when you think of the whole earth, less than 1% is actually where corals are living. What is corals function in the ocean ecosystem? So they are the most diverse marine ecosystem and they are bringing shelter and food to 25% or so marine life. So they're hugely important for just the the balance of biodiversity. They are protecting shores from erosion and like the huge storms. They are the first like breakwater. They're cleaning water, um, like a filtration system. And also they're 
I mean, to me, they're the most beautiful artistic architects, you know, in the world. So obviously they bring a lot of funding through tourism and that way of life, but it's seafood or our food comes from there, our shore protection. Okay. <laughs> so you mentioned um, something about climate change impacting coral. Would you be uh, brief, but explain a little bit about that problem? Sure. So as we build, as we burn the fossil fuels continuously, continuously, that carbon dioxide that has no place to go gets sunk like a sink into the ocean. And that carbon dioxide is heating up the ocean as well as heating up the planet, the atmosphere. So corals themselves are really sensitive to temperature. So one degree Celsius per month, say higher than their normal comfort zone will cause them to do what's called bleaching. And that's when they expel their symbiotic partner. Um, They start to suffer from not having enough food and starving. And basically you'll see those dead patches of crumbly coral. They're, They're no longer, they'll either die. They may recover if the temperature cools down some, but, Basically, that seems to be um, one of the, the dominant threats to their survival. And it's, it's, really, it's really now or never, you know, everyone's trying to throw at the, the solution. How do, we, how do we restore them? How do we bank their different diverse species, you know, to save for the future when the temperatures get better to bring them back? How do we produce more resilient species okay. and garden? What do you need to learn before you construct a sculpture that's not only going to be hospitable to coral, but, you know, survive underwater? As the easiest part for me was making, designing the structure and welding the structure. Those are like, I realized things that were in my practical abilities, Mm -hmm. but the challenge is you're now dealing with permitting. You're dealing with a whole, the government, with private business, with maintenance, infrastructure for electricity underwater. We also have a live streaming underwater camera now, thanks to um, the Zoe Anderson Memorial Fund. So I guess I had to learn all these new relational skills. I'm not sure if that's the question you're asking. I'm just saying that is something that I learned had to become developed from being an artist. Um, And I, I basically spent over five years, once we hit a I, I made the project and learned, oh, wow, I need to learn Spanish really well to fully understand the culture, the nonprofits, the governments, the, the, the business there. You can re-ask me maybe that question so I'm, I'm more pointed in my response. Okay, well, I've got two things that I need to ask you, one of which is, you said there's an electrical current. Does that run constantly underwater or was it a one-time thing? So right now we have a low volt current running constantly on the structure. The structure itself is steel with a low volt um, current. And then there's a titanium mesh nearby. That's the positive charge. So it's a cathodic, like for, for people who are familiar with cathodic protection to keep boats from rusting, things like that. It's basically that process, but with a slightly higher current so that the minerals build up onto the, the structure. Mm. So how do you get electricity down to the current generator? We have, although the, the cable, we have a cable plugged in to a dive shop called Sand Dollar Sports. Oh. In, and it runs the 60 meters. It's about the same wattage or uh, electricity usage as like a, a laptop. So it's not, right. it's not using a lot. 
but we run it through a cable and we have the cable through a PVC tube and then attach it to the, the two things and then you plug it in and then you get little bubbles and hydrogen fizz and you have a chemical reaction. I love the way you explain that. Mm-hmm. So uh, you said it's in an underwater museum in Cozumel. What exactly is an underwater museum? And is the one in Cozumel unique or are there more? I just want to share that it's a museum and it's more like a, I see it as like a, it's also a lab because there's these reef balls, there's these platforms. It's becoming more of a coral restoration laboratory mixed use museum in a way. So, so there are more in the world where people might focus on taking divers to see attractions, keeping them away from the reefs so the reefs can get healthy. So there's, you know, something exciting to see. But uh, I I was really mostly focused on coral restoration first. And then the art side is that I don't think we should have ugly things in the water and moving towards aesthetics as being critical. So take us on a virtual tour to your living sea sculpture and describe what we'd see. You know, take our hands and we're diving underwater. And what is it that we're going to go down and see? So you're going to walk in from the shore at the dive shop and it's just a few, you just go underwater and it's a few feet. You're first going to see these reef balls on the side, which are another form of reef restoration that have lots of fish like to hide out in them during the day. Then you'll keep swimming along and soon you'll see there's sand, there's rocks, there's anemones. You'll see a lot of uh, jacks and tangs and different local fish species. It's an area that was hit really hard by hurricanes. So it's exciting when we see like, oh, here's this coral, here's this coral coming back. And then you get to Zoe and off in the distance, you see a DNA double helic, helical structure. That's what Zoe is um, inspired by, DNA. And it's, it's this, I don't know, it's like double he- DNA helix with corals populating it. When you get really close, you see all the baby fish, you see the little crabs, you see that there's octopus growing now. After six years in the water, it's become like a true micro ecosystem. You keep mentioning Zoe. Is that the name oh. of the museum? So, sorry. So, so in the front, so the museum is called Musubo, which means the Museum of the Golden Diver. Okay. But it's not, like I said, it's, it's, it's a museum, but I feel like they're not, other than adding Jacques Cousteau's bust, Sylvia Earle's bust, and Ramon Bravo, the, the focus on it being art museum is less where the energy has been put, and, Dian, and Zoe. Zoe is named Zoe in memory of Zoe Anderson, who was um, tragically died of a carbon monoxide leak in her home, and her name means life, and the family foundation funded adding the camera and installing and a lot of the help with some of the maintenance. So that's why it's named Zoe as a memorial. It's a living memorial. So are you working on any new marine projects? I am. Um, my, my current project I'm working on is inventing or innovating new ways to do reefs that will be lightweight and transportable, but then through the electrolysis get rigid. So I'm actually trying something like in a, I'm a pioneering exploration phase right now. That's really exciting. I mean, where you started and what you've learned and 
how you're evolving along with the the work. It's very inspiring. So um, before we uh, have to conclude, I'd like to know how our listeners might adapt their concerns for the ocean and specifically, maybe specifically coral reefs into action to make a positive difference. Sunscreens that are reef safe or wearing protective clothing because those are toxic. Being aware of how fragile and sensitive corals right now with the nutrients flowing in from the the pollution and runoff from from roads, from fertilizers, from our own drains in the house. Don't put chemicals down the drains. All of those things go into the sea, kill the corals, cause algaes to grow that are deadly for them and smother them. I promised people this was going to be a fascinating conversation, and I really think it has been wonderful, and I'm really grateful that you gave your time to talk to me. Um, It has been inspiring to meet an artist who creates work with the intention of directly making a positive difference in the marine environment. I'd like to remind listeners that I have been speaking with Colleen Flanagan for the Women Mind the Water podcast series. The series can be viewed on womenmindthewater.com. An audio-only version of this podcast is available on the Women Mind the Water website, on iTunes, and other sites. Women Mind the Water is grateful to Jane Rice for the use of her song, Women of Water. All rights for the Women Mind the Water name and logo belong to Pam Ferris Olsen. This is Pam Ferris Olsen.